Good morning. Good morning. We're starting a brand new sermon series this morning called Fixed and Free. And if you're not sure what that means, hopefully by the end of the message today, you'll have a better idea. We're going to be uh, in this series for the next five weeks. And uh, at the end of the series, this is going to be really fun. In February, the Sunday before Lent begins, you know how they have like Fat Tuesday where, they're gonna, where they have like jazz and like Mardi Gras and like that kind of stuff? Well, we're going to do Fat Sunday. We're going to do like a pancake breakfast, have the jazz band up here the Sunday before Lent starts and have like a whole party. But before we do that, you got to listen to us talk for five weeks straight, okay? So it's like a good behavior thing, you know, like in school. Um, so, uh, the, the, the reason we're preaching this series right now is because, um, like Reagan said, the Methodist Church is in somewhat of a transition period, whether you're aware of that or not. Um, like many denominations in America, we have wrestled for the better part of the last 40 years over issues related to um, same-sex weddings and the ordination of gay people. And uh, this has been a debate that has gone on and on. We meet every four years as a denomination globally to discuss many things, but this uh, debate has dominated the floor every time. And the most recent gathering in 2016 um, we had some leaders step up and say, you know what, uh, yelling back and forth is not accomplishing anything. We've been doing this same thing for 40 years and we haven't gotten anywhere. Um, so we need to do something different. What they asked to be done was for the bishops uh, to put together a group called the Commission on the Way Forward. And this group is, is comprised of both pastors and non-pastors uh, who are part of the Methodist Church, who represent the global denomination, so it's a diverse group. And this group of people, their job was basically to meet for a couple of years and to figure out some sort of plan for how to move forward as a denomination uh, because we know that if nothing changes, we will likely do what most other denominations that have wrestled with these same issues have done, and that is to split. And um, a, a split is a painful thing for the Methodist church. Organizationally, it will be a difficult thing if that happens. Um, and so we're trying to find a way to move forward together, maintaining as much unity as possible, but also allowing people to follow God in the ministry that God has set upon their hearts. So, all that being said, in a year's time, February of 2019, we're going to have a special gathering of that general conference. These delegates from around the world are going to gather together, like the UN, and they will only be working on voting on the things presented to them by this commission on the way forward. If your eyes are glazing over right now, bear with me. I'm like two minutes away from being done with this. So, um, They will vote in February of 2019 on these issues, and, and something will happen then. We don't know what's going to happen. That's why this is a little bit of a difficult subject and why a lot of churches aren't talking about it because no one likes to talk about change, especially change that you don't know what it's going to be, right? This is difficult. We don't know what's going to happen. We may see policy changes. We may see our book of discipline change. We may see nothing change. We may see uh, groups begin to splinter off. We may see a combination of those things. We, we simply don't know. But what we do know is that February of 2019 is going to get here because that's how time works, right? And so we've got to start talking about these things. And Lover's Lane is a church that wants to lead the way in having these conversations because we feel like as a congregation, we represent to a degree sort of global Methodism. We have conservatives and progressives. We have African congregations. We have <coughs> persons with disabilities. We have persons who are gay. We have persons who are straight. We have white, black, everything in between. We've got everybody represented in this church. And there are plenty of times that, trust me, we disagree. I've got the emails to prove it. But somehow we managed to rally around a common mission and a common cause, and we managed to make everyone feel respected. We treat everyone with respect and with love and with grace. And we have found a way to move forward as a congregation in these same kinds of debates. And so we want to talk about these things in a larger denominational scale. 
And there's a group called the Uniting Methodists that have sprung up in recent months um, who are trying to be kind of like Lover's Lane, trying to speak for what, what we call the big middle, right? Like in any debate, there's really loud voices on this side and there's really loud voices on this side. And then there's about 80% of people in between that are just putting their heads down and hoping it doesn't blow up. And we're trying to give voice to that group in the middle, because we feel like Lover's Lane and other churches that are, that are in a similar situation, we feel like there is more in that group. There are more people who want to stay together, who want to provide each other freedoms to follow God's will the way that they are led. We feel like that group is larger than we currently know because they're just not that loud. And this group has put together a mission and vision statement. And, and in these statements, they, they talk about these words fixed and free. And Stan and Reagan and Donna Whitehead and I have been a part of a conference that met recently, so we've been able to learn more about this. But essentially, fixed and free, as we'll talk about today, is the way that, that we are looking theologically at these issues that are beginning to divide us. Because like any debate, the surface stuff usually isn't the thing, right? The surface stuff is just a symptom. So when we say that we're arguing over who can get married or we're arguing over who can get ordained, what we're really arguing about is how do we understand scripture? And how do we understand the church? And really, how do we understand God? And those are big conversations that you can't have in two weeks at a general conference, right? So we're trying to have those conversations in the local level. And hopefully by the end of today, you can understand, uh, begin to understand sort of where we're coming from as your local church, but also where these conversations are leading in the larger denomination. Um, and so like Reagan said, I encourage you to be here every week that you can. Um, each week, we're going to take a different focus. This week, we're going to talk more generally about what it means to be a people who believe in a fixed and free God. To start that conversation, I want to talk about guitars. This is actually ukulele. Spoiler alert. Um, I was just in Mississippi for uh, about a week, uh, a couple weeks ago after Christmas. Got to go see my mom's side of the family, go see the kinfolk over in Mississippi. Uh, I've got woohoo! shout out from my mom. That's always fun to have happen when you're preaching. No, oh, Dee Dee, I'm sorry. I just heard a loud voice from my mom's direction and I assumed, sorry, mom, I love you. Dee Dee, you got me in trouble. Thanks a lot. All right. See you at lunch, mom. Okay. Uh, went out to see my mom's side. My grandparents live in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Any other Mississippians in the room? Yeah, one. Awesome. <laughs> me and John are going to hang out later, eat cornbread. All right. So uh, I was talking with my Uncle Doug, who's from Birmingham, Alabama, and I asked him about his Christmas, and, and he said, I got this really cool gift for Christmas. I've always wanted to learn how to play the guitar. He's about to retire, something that I'll never understand. And um, as a little joke for millennials in the room, um, and he said, I've always wanted to learn how to play guitar, and my friend knows I'm about to retire, so he, he, he actually custom makes guitars on the side, and his friend made him a custom guitar. It's got like this powder blue finish and these like red casino dice for the knobs on the body, and, and I was asking him how it was going, and he said, you know, it's actually been kind of hard. I didn't realize how hard it would be, and I, I thought maybe he was talking about, you know, learning all the different chords because your hands have to make these weird shapes. He said, no, actually, the, the strings really hurt my fingers. Um, and if you've ever tried to learn how to play guitar, if you play guitar, you know what that's like with those first couple of weeks learning to play. I mean, your fingers feel like they're going to bleed. They hurt so much. And the reason they hurt is because the strings that you're pressing down on are held under really high tension. 
Right? It's, 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 it's the way the, the guitar makes music, but they're held under really high tension. And the way that it works is on one side, you've got this thing called a bridge, and the strings are, are kept in a fixed position. They don't move. That's their anchor point. And then they're pulled across the length of the guitar, down the neck, and they're wrapped around these little tuning knobs. And these are able to be moved, and you twist them and turn them, and that makes the sound go up or, or down, right? And when you hit the right tuning for the song that you want to play, it can sound very nice, right? But when you're pressing down and trying to make different sounds, it's hard at first because the strings are really under high tension, and it's painful. And it got me thinking about tension, because when I think about tension, when you think about tension, usually we think of that word as a negative thing, right? When we say you can walk into a room and you could cut the tension with a knife, it's not a good thing, right? And yet, with a guitar, here you've got this thing where one side is very still and one side is moving and in between is all this tension. And yeah, there's some pain, but there's also music. It's where the music happens, too, is in the middle of that tension, I think that as a denomination, we're kind of wrestling with right now, one of those deeper foundational things we're wrestling with is do we want tension? Or would we rather not? I mean, what if I took a pair of scissors right now and just cut the strings, right? Each side of the guitar could go its separate ways. No more pain and no more music. So I actually think that tension might be a good thing. I think that sometimes we look at the Christian faith and we see things that look like they're in tension. And maybe we're outside the Christian faith and we think those things are contradictory. Like we say that God is eternal, but God's also in the person of Jesus Christ. How in the world is that possible? But I don't think that tensions are contradictory in the Christian faith. I actually think that the tensions we find in the Christian faith are complementary. And that's the question I want to wrestle with today. Are the tensions we find in the Christian faith contradictory or complementary? Because contradictory tensions, those you need to cut. Those you need to allow to go separate ways, right? Because they just don't fit together. But if they complement one another, like the two ends of a guitar and music can be made in the middle, then that's a beautiful thing that we really don't want to waste. To help us dive into this fixed and free conversation, we're going to look at two sets of scripture this morning. Very classic Christmas scriptures. Because, you know, it's still Christmas time. You didn't put up your lights or your tree yet, did you? Still Christmas, according to the liturgical calendar. Um, the first one is from the book of Exodus, classic Christmas story. And the second one is from my personal favorite, First Kings. Really good Christmas time stuff. No, not really. Uh, these are two scriptures that are about similar things, but they're different. Okay? Um, they're both about the Israelites being told to build something. They're both about the Israelites being told to build something. In one hand, they're being told to build this tent-like structure. In the other scripture, they're told to build this very sturdy temple-like structure. And in some ways, these are very different buildings, and in some ways, they're very similar buildings. And we're going to talk about how they're different and how they're the same. In Exodus, beginning in chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, it, just so you know, before we read this, this is the Israelites after they've left Egypt, right? So that's where the name Exodus comes from. They've left Egypt, and they're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Can you imagine wandering, homeless, no idea where you're headed. You know that there's some promised land out there that you've been told is gonna, uh, that you're going to arrive at one day. But you know what? Honestly, you've got doubts you're ever going to get there. So they're wandering, they're wandering, they're wandering. And in chapter 25, God says this. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to take for me an offering from all whose hearts prompt them to give. Whoops. Sorry. Yes. These are the gifts 
offerings that you should receive from them, gold, silver, and copper, blue, purple, and deep red yarns, fine linen, goat's hair, that's weird, God, ram skins, dyed red, beaded leather, acacia, acacia, don't correct me, wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet-smelling incense, gemstones and gems for setting in the priest's vest and chest piece. They should make me a sanctuary so I can be present among them. You should follow the blueprints that I show you for the dwelling and for all its equipment. And then in 1 Kings, we see a similar story. This time, the Israelites aren't homeless. They're not building a tent, as it's described in Exodus. Instead, now, there are people in the promised land. They're established. They're wanting to lay roots. And even more importantly, they want to enter the international stage, right? Think about where Israel is situated. They've got Syria to the north. They've got Babylon to the east. They've got Egypt back to the south. They need to be one of the big boys. They need to know who they are as a nation and as a people. They need an identity. And we see God say this. Now, the word of the Lord, I think the scripture actually is wrong on the screens. I, I made a mistake earlier. This is found in chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. So we can just leave the screens off for now. Now, the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes, obey my ordinances, and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will establish my promise with you, which I made to your father David. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. So these are two different buildings. In the wilderness, they're building a tent. They're building this thing called a tabernacle. And the whole point of the tabernacle is that it moves, right? There are people on the move. They don't have time to build stone houses because they're going to be gone any minute, right? And so they need a place where God can dwell that is able to move freely with them. And then in 1 Kings, we see a people in a very different position. Now they've got a land. They've got a place. They've got a home. And what they need is identity. And so they're going to build a stone temple, and they will know that no matter where they are or where they go, the stone temple is home. And that's who they are. We are the Jewish people, and this is our temple, and God lives here. Notice the similarity between the two, though. You know, God desires different things for the different places. In the tabernacle, he's wanting these offerings, these sacrificial gifts. These are nomads, and he's asking for gems and for gold and for silver. I mean, this is... This is the nicest things they'll ever own. And in the other hand, he's asking for ordinances and commandments, and he's asking them to keep a covenant with him. But the one thing that is, remains the same between the fabric and the stone, between the movement and the steadfastness, is God says, this is my place where I will dwell with my children. This word dwelling comes up in both these scriptures. God says, this is the place that I will dwell with my children. The important thing about these places is not the places, it's not the stuff, it's not the things. The important part of these places is God's spirit dwelling there. So whether God's children are on the move, God is with them. Or if God's children are home, God is with them. It's the dwelling that matters. Whether God's spirit is where it's always been or whether God's spirit is on the move, God is always dwelling with God's children. That's what we learn from these dwelling places that God puts upon the Israelites' hearts. Now, this might sound to you like a little bit of tension or a little contradictory. How can God be a God on the move and a God who stays put at the same time? How is that possible? Either God is going to follow me wherever I go or God is going to be there where I can find him whenever I need him. But how is God both? 
How is God both in the tabernacle and in the temple? These things just don't go together. And to be honest, how many of you would prefer one or the other? How many of us would prefer, if I really pegged you down, if I really asked you, would you rather God be freely moving? Would you rather God be freely moving or would you rather God be steadfast and fixed? Which one would you honestly prefer? I think most of us, most days, would prefer one or the other, depending on what we need God to be for us. The reality is that both of these places, both of these dwelling places are home for God, and God is present in both of them, and God is free, and God is fixed at the same time. And so let's take a moment to understand why that's important, that we hold both of these in tension with one another. First, the God of the tabernacle. Tabernacle comes from the Latin word tabernaculum. It's pretty close. Uh, and it means tent, right? So this is, this is literally a tent. If you go to Israel, there's this random spot in the desert somewhere where they've recreated it. And it's like a tent with a fence thing around it. And inside is they've tried to recreate everything that's described in the book of Exodus. But what it is is it's a tent. It's this thing that they can pick up. It's made of fabric. It flows. Physically, it flows. Can you see it? Right? And anytime you need to go, you can pick it up in five minutes and move. And the tent went with the Israelites everywhere. We see the tent show up at Jericho. We see the tent show up at these different places where they have their big battles. And the the center camp is the tabernacle, is the tent. It's always going with them. This is God at God's most free. This is a God who knows how to find us wherever we are. Even if we are lost in the wilderness, God is going to be there. That's a good image of God. I need a God who is going to relentlessly pursue me through the highs and lows of my human experience. Do you? I need a God who's willing to go there for me. This makes me think of when Jesus teaches about the one lost sheep. Maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't. So in the Gospels, Jesus is teaching his followers and he says, God is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And 99 of them are safe in the pen. 99 of them. That's a pretty good percentage. I don't know if you ever got a 99 on a test, but I'm willing to bet you didn't sweat the one point, right? Maybe you did. We can talk. 99 is pretty good, but he says there's this one sheep that wandered away, and the shepherd wasn't satisfied. He said, I know I've got 99 right here, but I, I can't go to sleep at night until I find that one. And the shepherd roams the countryside, goes all over the place looking for this dadgum sheep. One sheep out of a hundred. And he finds him and he carries him home. That's a beautiful image of God. That's a God who is free. That is a God who will follow you into the wilderness, into the lost places, into the depths of your experience, and will lift you out. And that's a good image of God. But is that enough? Is that the only one we need? Is God free the only thing that we need God to be? I think not. And to explain, I want to talk about Andy. Surprise, surprise. I got to get these stories in, by the way, before she listens to these sermons. And she gets really ticked at me for talking about her all the time. So if you don't know, I've got a toddler. She's almost two. And she's actually, she's 47. And her name is Andy. And her favorite thing to eat in the world is potato chips, or she calls them bips, because she's adorable. And I love her. And if I'm ever eating potato chips, she'll walk up to me and she'll say, Dada, bips, peas, you know, and I'm like, oh, geez, how do I not? But I know that she's probably had several bips that day. And so I'll say, Andy, go ask your mom if you can have some more bips. Okay, okay. And she'll scatter over 
and go find mom in the master bedroom, and then I, I won't hear anything, and I'll, she'll scatter back in the bedroom. Dada, bips, please, you know. And I said, did you ask mama? Mm-hmm. What'd she say? Uh, yeah. I said, did she really? So I say, let's go. We walk over to the master bedroom. And I find Reagan. Reagan, uh-huh. Did, Ray, did Andy ask you if she could have some more chips? She goes, no. And Angel looks at me just like, peas? You know. Of course she gets them every time because I can't discipline my own child because um, she's too cute. Have you ever had a relationship with God like Andy has with Reagan sometimes? Where whatever you want the answer to be, that happens to be what the answer is. You go to God and you've got this really difficult decision to make and you think you've got the right decision and you say, you know, I'm going to pray about this. And you pray and God just whispers, you're so right. You're the rightest you've ever been. You're so right and everyone else is so wrong about everything, everything you're right about. You ever had that relationship with God? I do way too often. Wait, I love being right, but guess what? Sometimes God whispers in my ear, dude, you are so wrong. You're so wrong. And the trouble with only believing in a God who is free, with only believing in the God of the tabernacle, is guess what? God will follow you everywhere. Everywhere? Everywhere. Even the places that God shouldn't follow you, even the truths that aren't true, even the opinions that are just flat-out lies. We live in this world. This is another sermon for another day, but I'm just going to say it because I did an 815. I didn't tick them off too much. We live in this world where somehow every opinion is equally valid, which is just bogus, right? Like, there are bad opinions in the world. Amen? Like, I don't know about rocket science. I keep like, well, my opinion is this is actually Mars, right? And like, well, it's my opinion. Like, that, who cares? Like, that's a dumb opinion. Anyways, don't let God be your dumb opinions is my point, right? Sometimes we've got things that come across our brain or we've got movements in our heart that just really are not God-breathed. And when we say we're going to God in prayer, what we're really doing is just looking in the mirror, just going, I'm so right. And that's not healthy. And if God's only in the tabernacle, then yeah, it's comforting to know that God is always by my side and is always going to follow me wherever I go. But you know what Jesus does with the one lost sheep? He doesn't set up camp there. What's he do? He brings the sheep back into the fold. A free God is a God who will follow us, but it's not a God who will always pat us on the back and say, you're 100% right. Because that's an unhealthy Christianity. Christian faith should always challenge us. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. When is the last time that your faith challenged you and made you actually think, act, or believe differently than you did before? If you can't point to that moment, then I'd say, man, we got to work on that. I've got to work on that. If we only desire a free God, are we not simply following our own wills? And that's a dangerous place for the Christian faith to be in because that means everybody gets to make up everything. And that is not sustainable. And that's not God-breathed. But God is free, and God is also fixed. Now, we've talked about the God of the tabernacle. Now let's talk about the God of the temple. And maybe this is the image that you really like, because the temple is stone, and the temple is unmoving, and the temple is there. In some ways, it's still there today. We've got some Perkins students who are associated with our church. Carrie Lynn, who preached last week, another man named Randall Lucas, who's going to be an intern for us next year. They're in 
Israel right now on a Perkins trip with the Perkins School of Theology at SMU. And they've been posting photos, and it's made me think about when I got to go to Israel a few years back, and they were posting photos of the Western Wall. You know what I'm talking about? It's, the, it's this big wall, and it's sacred to the Jewish people especially because it's the foundation. It's where the temple stood for thousands and thousands of years. And then a second temple stood until it came down in the year 72. But that foundation, that western wall is still there. And you can go and you can touch it and you can kiss it if you want. I don't know, maybe you want to. And you can pray by it. And you can know that not only are you touching it, but people of faith have touched those stones for millennia. Like It's powerful. There is something sacred about that spot. I don't get like chill bumps often about sacred spaces because I'm just kind of a cynic that way, but that spot, I get bumps thinking about it because there's so much faith in that space. And when the Jewish people have their, have their nation being built, they need a place that they know no matter where they go, no matter what they do, if they come back, God is there. I know where to find my faith again. I know where God's spirit is housed. And if you go there today, you can touch those stones and you can get little chill bumps too and you'll know that there's something special about that wall. Makes me think about another story that Jesus told. The story of the prodigal son. Again, if you don't know, he tells this story to his followers where there's a man with two sons and the youngest one uh, comes to his father. He's really mad and, and he says, I want my inheritance now instead of when you die. I want it now. So the father, being a generous daddy, he gives him his inheritance, and the son goes off and squanders it. He parties it up, and he loses everything. He ends up working for a pig farmer and living in the pigsty and eating the pig's food, which is the lowest of the low in a Jewish society. And one day he's had enough of it, and he remembers his home. He remembers his dad, and he knows that his dad is a gracious dad. And so he gets up, and he's still filthy, but he walks back home, and as soon as his dad can see him down the road, he runs out to meet him and gives him the biggest hug and says, come on in. Let me set the table. Let's throw a party. Sometimes we don't need God to come out and find us. Sometimes we just need to know where God is so that when we get back there, we know he'll meet us. We know that grace will abound. We know that love, those chill bumps that we get will come washing back over. Sometimes what we just need in our lives is an anchor. We need a home. And that's what the temple was for the Israelite people. But, you know, I, I can't help but think of that prodigal son story and not think about the older son. If you know this story, you know what happens next. The older son's standing there. You know, he stayed the whole time. He worked that farm. He did everything dad asked him to do. And now dad is throwing his disgusting brother a party. And he's mad. In fact, he won't even call him his brother. He says, this son of yours, because he sees him as so sinful, so irredeemably sinful. He says, how can you let him back in? How can you give him these things? How can you pull up a seat to the table for him? When I've been here, I've lived by your commandments. I've lived by your statutes. To borrow the language of First Kings, when God says, live by, by my commandments, live by my statutes, the older brother says, I've done everything you've asked me to do. And he gets a seat at the table too? Sometimes I'm, I'm him. Sometimes I look at the people around me. I look at the people that I see God extending grace to, and I'm like, really? 
They get a seat at the table. Don't tell me that when you're sitting at the gates of heaven and you look out and you see someone, I don't know who it is, but there's someone in your life you see walking up and God's going to go out and give them a hug and you're going to say, darn it. I know they're going to sit next to me. It's going to be the worst. Don't tell me that's not true. And it's because sometimes we value these commandments and these statutes more than the spirit of God itself. The older brother got it wrong. See, he got so focused on commandments and ordinances and statutes that he forgot about the spirit of a loving dad. My question for us this morning is if if you believe in a fixed God, if you need God to be stable and steadfast, and if you think commandments and covenants are important, I agree with you, they are. But the problem we run into is when that becomes our only image of God is commandments and statutes and ordinances, then guess what? The table is never small enough. And none of us will ever measure up. And we'll all be on the outside looking in. So to close this message today, I want to lift up these ideas of God being fixed and free as something of a theological framework. That's a big phrase, but a, a way to understand how we see God, how we see Jesus, how we see the Holy Spirit, how we see the church, how we see unity being possible in the midst of really divisive conversations. Because I think one of the beauties of the Christian faith is that we've got a faith that lives in tension. We've got a faith that on one side is very fixed and is steadfast and is born out of covenant and commandment. And we've also got a faith that is very free and moves and shifts whatever the day needs. And most of us live somewhere in the middle, somewhere between a fixed and a free God, thankful for both, thankful for a God that we can find whenever we need him and a God who can find us when we desperately do. And it can be painful, and it can be hard to learn a faith like this, but there's music in the middle. There's music in this tension. And so my prayer for the United Methodist Church as we walk through this next year together is that we wouldn't separate ourselves out of a desire to be right today. And I'll say more about that in a couple of weeks. But my, my desire is that we could understand that our faith has always been a faith full of tensions. Our faith has always been a faithful of tensions from the days of tabernacles and temples. God has asked us to think bigger and to expand ourselves. This is one of those moments. So I encourage you to wrestle with this this week, to consider in what ways have you grown comfortable with the God of a tabernacle or only comfortable with the God of a temple? How is God challenging you to see God's spirit in both? And then how can we take that tension and apply it to the rest of our faith? So that we can see, yeah, there's some pain, but there's some beauty too. And beauty that we are at risk of losing. And the music could be gone. And that is not God-breathed. Let us pray. Holy and precious God, on this first Sunday of the new year, We praise you for being a God who is bigger than us, a God who is more than our limitations. We praise you for being a God who's on the move, 
who reaches people that we don't even expect, who is out there on the fringes, who is out there in the wilderness, who is out there in the countryside finding the one lost sheep, the richness of your love for even the smallest of us. God, we praise you for that. We have felt that love firsthand. We have felt those moments when we were far gone and we had no idea where to turn, and there you were beside us, holding us, uplifting us, comforting us, crying next to us. And God, we give thanks for your presence in the temple. We give thanks for your steadfastness. We give thanks for a covenant that ushers us in to life abundant. We give thanks for these places and these spaces that we know whenever we need to find you, we can go there. Whether that's a sanctuary or a coffee shop or our parents' house or a friend's apartment or the Western Wall in Jerusalem. We give thanks that you're a God who loves to find us, but a God who loves to be found. God, we thank you that you correct us when we're wrong, that you encourage us when we're right, that in this Christmas season, you are with us. You are with us. You are with us. Whether that is exactly where we've always known you to be or someplace we can't even imagine yet. So God, let us be a people living in the tension of fixed and free, a people living in the tension of what it means to be steadfast and on the move. Let us be a people hungry for your heart and hungry to share the gospel of Jesus Christ for the transformation of our world. It's in your son's holy and precious name we pray and we say, amen.